A salary is the drug they give you when they want you to forget about your dreams. Welcome to the Corporate Dropout Podcast. I'm your host, Alessia Citro. After a successful career in tech, suffering from burnout, stress, and anxiety, I walked away from a multiple six-figure career to chase my passions and purpose as a coach and entrepreneur. This show is going to inspire, equip, and empower you to do the same. Let's get it. Hello, friends. Today, I'm interviewing Kevin Wathy, actor and entrepreneur. Kevin is the founder and CEO of Synchronicity, which empowers others to achieve their true potential through trainings, retreats, and events. He is also the host of The Synchronicity Show, a podcast that deconstructs the lives of top business professionals, consultants, and world-class performers to provide listeners with powerful information that will help them live a happy, healthy, and fulfilling life. Kevin, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you for having me. It's an absolute pleasure. Well, I can't wait to get into this because like most of my guests, you have an interesting background. You're also adding to my theory that successful entrepreneurs got their start in either retail or hospitality. So (laughs) let's talk a little bit about your life. I I was going to say before founding Synchronicity, but you founded it sort of in tandem with this job at the Ondas. So can you tell us a little bit about that and how you got your professional start after college? Absolutely. Um, the so the the way that I initially started Synchronicity was I had worked for Hyatt Hotels for years, and part of where I was transitioning to was I was helping. I was I was a bartender, and I was running a food and beverage program and helping create basically scratch bars. So that's where you're creating every single ingredient, and it's like the whole kind of like hipster approach to bartending that everyone sees these days. So. What happened was I was at the Hyatt Regency here in Scottsdale, and I had then transitioned and and really applied for a job to help open the Ondas. And part of my negotiation in order to open the Ondas was to say, hey, if I'm going to do this for you, you need to do this for me. And that's when I was getting really into health and wellness and yoga and fitness. So I said, if I'm going to build this for you or open this for you, what you need to do for me is you need to let me run the yoga and fitness amenity for your guests as an amenity, but I'm also going to run it as my own studio. And that was the trade-off. And I said, if I can run this as my own studio, I will come help you open the property. That was like the trade-off between the two. Fast forward, I started making more money down the line because the studio was starting to take off. And I know I had no overhead because of it. They were just letting me do it for them. But then once they saw that, then they were like, okay, Kevin, we, uh, we need 50%. I was like, hmm, here's my two weeks. <laughs> <laughs> and that's when I, I took a step back. The, the reason being was because what I had envisioned and what I really wanted to do was, was continue down the path of health and wellness. But what was happening is I was making them far too much money on the bartending side as a resort, as a property. And they didn't see the same numbers as a resort, as a property on the health and wellness side. So they didn't let me transition. I had at the time, this is the kind of the entrepreneurial thought process. I had created a proposal of how we could branch this out, basically make it on demand and roll it out within Hyatt as a whole. Mm. What then happened was they said, "Mm, health and wellness is never going to get there. We don't necessarily need to do that. That's not where we're going. And now they have a partnership with Headspace. And it's on demand in every single Hyatt TV in the world. So you were ahead of the time. So it was a blessing and it was a blessing and a curse though. I shouldn't say it was a curse at all. It, it was a blessing because 
it showed me that I was able to be a forward thinker and say, okay, I'm onto something. I can create something. I have my own willpower or prowess or whatever you want to call it in order to create something myself. Why do I need to be working for someone else? Why do I need to quote the security or whatever you want to call it of following the traditional path that people are told were conditioned that society tells you this is what you need to do. And then that's when I began to say, okay, I'm going to go all into this. And synchronicity early days looked far different than, than it does now. So one thing I really love about this story, you used leverage to get something out of it by also adding value to them. I feel like a lot of people are afraid to do that and ask for something that's going to be a win-win because they don't want to ruffle feathers. Do you feel like you need to just kind of put that to bed and just ask for what you want and leverage what you have? In, in every single area of life, in everything that you do, the, so the, the biggest thing is if you're afraid to piss something, if you're afraid to piss someone off, you're never going to accomplish anything in your life because, <laughs> because number one, like say I work with a lot of clients on our consulting side in the online space. If you, and when they're first starting out, something that happens is they are afraid to put up ads that are polarizing or slightly controversial because of what's going to be said on those ads. But guess what? You're not going to see any results unless you're doing that, unless you're sharing something that looks like news, unless you're you're competing with everything else in the world now, essentially. Yeah. I would reframe it because competition is not really what you're doing when you have an, a client focus. That's a completely different realm. And that's where you can then really dominate. But what you need to do is have that conversation with yourself. So I would much rather have a thousand people just absolutely hate me but to say that I helped a thousand people rather than saying everyone loves me. I am all unicorns and rainbows, <laughs> but I've never helped anyone in my life. How is yeah. that serving? How is that beneficial? How is that actually propelling society, yourself, others around you forward? It's not. And that's just because of your own insecurities of, of fear of failure, fear of rejection, fear of whatever you want to call it. But then if we take that one step farther, you can reframe this. Rejection and refusal are two different things. I can refuse you and say, hey, I'm not going to accept this because it doesn't align with me. Most people will assume that that's rejection. And then they're going to take it personally. They're going to get butthurt. They're going to say, Kevin's an asshole. No, it just doesn't align. It's a rejection or it's a refusal, not a rejection. Ah, you know, I've never heard anyone make that distinction, but yeah, I like that. I think you nailed it. And being okay with whatever journey we're on, not worrying so much what other people think, because who cares, right? We got to be true to ourselves. At the end of the day, it doesn't, it doesn't matter what someone else thinks, because your reality is entirely perceived by you. What yeah. you, it, like, <laughs> I don't know how far down the business path or tangent you want to get with this, but even your product program or service that you're offering, the price that you set it for has nothing to do with what you set it at. It's the perception of the client that sets the value of that product, mm. that program, that service. And then if we really break this down, there's then an equation. So if you take out, if you take the perceived value of it, and then you take the actual price minus the hassle, now you have the actual perceived value. As long as that's a positive number, now they see the trade-off. If it's a negative, right. they're going to say it's too expensive. But right. you can say... Okay, my, my, my program's $1,000. Yeah, it's too expensive. 
okay, it's $500. Still too expensive. It's because you haven't tipped the scale yet. It has nothing to do with the price. And that's why when people say, oh, it's never the price, that is what they're saying. And they just haven't internalized or recognized why that is just yet. Great nugget. Love that. Especially as someone who is creating a masterclass and me and my business partner are kicking around how we price this, we might have to circle back on that offline. percent, <laughs> 100%, 100%. That's my That's my bread and butter right there. So before we move on to the meat of it, I just have to know, because I was in retail and hospitality for many, many years, I got to know what's the best story of your time bartending that shaped your business life, if you can think of just one. Best story bartending that shaped my business life. I don't know if there's a specific... I can, I can guarantee I can drum up a story that shaped it. But I will say that... It's what shaped me as a bartender that actually is what shaped my business life. And that's my background in acting and theatrical performance and psychology. If anyone is wanting to get into really any business, doesn't matter what it is, I would say take an improv acting class because nothing else matters if you can't effectively communicate with someone. And if you can't effectively communicate how you feel, you're never going to get what you want. So if we circle this back around to what you had said before, worried about what people think, if you can't even communicate to them what you want, you're never going to get it. So you're, you're trying to ride a bike with square, square wheels in the sand, kind of, and you can't go anywhere. Yeah. So I would say that shaped my ability or skill set when bartending because I was able to communicate and adapt who I was to that specific person mm-hmm. in the moment. And then spitball back and forth with them based on what they're giving me. Because as from a business standpoint, maybe this is the, the story, is that nobody buys... They always say this. Nobody buys the features, they buy the benefit. But look at it from a bartending standpoint. If I'm telling you a story about this meal... So if you sit down and I'm going to tell you a story about the new chef special that we're running tonight, and I tell you that it's this New York Prime perfectly cooked medium rare steak. We have a balsamic drizzle on top of it. The first time I tasted it, it was almost as if it melted in my mouth. And it was like the best thing that I had ever had. Now to complement that, we have these rosemary roasted potatoes and then some garlic broccoli. We could, we could sub out for asparagus if you want, but all together it pairs so well. And then really, if you just want to take it to the next level, because this is what all of our, our best our best clients, our best guests coming in to join us, they pair it with this specific wine. And we can do the bottle for you and your wife because it's a special occasion tonight. And now I just turned your entire meal into a story. And now you're spending three to $500 with me and not 50. Yep. And you created an experience as well. Correct. Also, now I'm hungry. Thanks for that. <laughs> I was saying, I was like, maybe I should have eaten before I got <laughs> All right. So I want to hear too, how did you get your start in yoga? And and part of why I'm interested in this is that so many people listening have a passion or a love for something like yoga, and they just have no idea how to make a career or business out of it. So how did you get into it? And then how did you pivot into actually making a living from this? So the the story kind of the lead up to discovering yoga, and it's going to be like the cliche, yoga found me rather than I found yoga is kind of the way it is, the cliche that you say. But when I explain the story, it will make perfect sense. So I lost and let's tie this all in because to business as well, we know business is 80% mindset, 20% systems. 
The yeah. 20% of systems also dictate your mindset, which means business is basically a 100% mindset. Okay. I lost my mother to pancreatic cancer when I was 17. I was a junior in high school going into my senior year. She had just run a half triathlon, the Tempe Town Lake Triathlon in, in Arizona. Two months later, she had back pain. She went to the doctor thinking she hurt herself because she's never run a triathlon before. Stage four pancreatic cancer metastasized to almost every major organ. And they gave her three months to live. Oh, my God. Mid 40s, super healthy, just ran a half triathlon. Like, and I'm 17, like, mm. just destroyed. Yeah. So, what happened is this was December of 2009. And right after New Year's, she said that she had three months. And then January, she sat us down on the couch. And it was me, my dad, and my sister. And she goes, I'm going to spend one more Christmas with you guys. They just gave her three months. This is January now. So in my mind, I'm like, the hell are you talking about? Like, that's not physically possible. Like, we're taking everything at base value, essentially. That was one of the most difficult years of my entire life. And it honestly really ruined, not ruined, but it set other areas up for my life in a downward spiral that I had to then overcome. But I'm grateful for it because it's created me into who I am today. She passed away December 26th, 2010. Oh my gosh. So just by sheer will. Mm -hmm. So with wow. that, that oh being said, if anyone tells you that they can't do something, which I, in my vocabulary, consider that a cuss word, a C word is can't. And yeah. try is another one as well. Because I hate that word too. <laughs> it's not like, that's not the fucking case for anything. Like, yeah. If you set your mind to accomplishing it without a shadow of a doubt, you can do it. No, yeah. no ifs, ands, or buts, or whatever you want to say. And that is case in point. I was in high school at the time. I was, so I would have been, I was 17 when it happened. So I was in like the middle of my senior year of high school. And I was on the hockey team. I played, I played hockey in high school. And I, from that moment, I just like basically said no to everything. So I quit the team. I stopped going to school. I just like the world hated me is how I like perceived it in my mind. No. And then one day I was at school and I was in my fourth period of math class and I get a phone, I get a phone call and I'm just like, I don't care. So I'm going to step out of class. I take the phone call. The, for anyone who listens and knows, knows hockey, the captain of the coyotes, the Phoenix coyotes at the time, Shane Doan called me and he said, Hey, Kevin, I've been brought up. Like I've been told about your story and what's happened. And I want to let you know that you can make whatever decision that you want in life. But I want to tell you one thing, and that's that your word and what you tell people and what you commit to is the only thing that you have. Mm. And if you quit on something for the rest of your life, you are going to be a quitter. Mm. Finish out the season with your team and then choose whatever you want to do. But because that's a choice with yourself, not with someone else. The remainder of that season was the best I had ever played. Wow. From that season, I went and tried out for a junior hockey team. And I went and played two more years of junior hockey on the East Coast, which is essentially semi-professional. So I played two years in the East Coast or in the Eastern Junior EJHL. And so I played, I was based in Florida, funny. Arizona kid goes to Florida to play hockey, surprisingly. <laughs> but we played, that is kind of funny. <laughs> up and down the East Coast. And I mean, those bus rides from Florida to Maine are absolutely stellar. 
Um, <laughs> so I played for two years. And the first year I played fantastically. The second year I started to get in my own head because I had went straight from losing my mother, never really grieving to going into a very like athlete driven, I don't know the right word for it, approach to life where it's like, fuck you, you're fine. Just yeah, power through. through. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so I, and then my second season, I, I was like starting to drink. I was starting to drink again and like got deeper into, into like things that weren't propelling me towards who I wanted to become. Yeah. And at the same time, I started acting and in between, cause in between the seasons I had spent time in New York and LA. So I started acting, auditioning for shows, doing scene studies. And there were two, there was a positive and a negative to that. The positive was that it was the first like cathartic thing that I allowed myself to experience and express. That's what was one of the most beneficial things for acting. The negative was that I was now surrounded with people who were only interested in materialistic success and who were only interested in becoming someone at the expense of themselves. Mm-hmm. So I now got thrown down this rabbit hole of this is who you should be. This is who you need to become as conditioned by society. And at the same time, I then finished out the the junior season and I was like, okay, I'm done playing hockey because I didn't make the team that I wanted to go to. I wanted to move up to New Hampshire and go play on a team there. Didn't make that team. I was the last person cut. And I don't know how my life would have gone if I actually made the team. Who knows? But I am where I am now because of it. So that led me to acting. And then my dad, he was like, if you're not playing hockey, super sports mindset, because if you're not playing hockey, you have to go to school. And if you don't go to school, I'm never helping you with anything else you want ever in your life. And I was like, okay, dad. <laughs> Great. So uh, I have no choice. Uh, but the thing was, is he just, he goes, I don't care what you go to school for. So I was like, all right, I'm going to school for theater. So I went to ASU for theater. I did my undergrad. Technically, it would have been in two and a half years, but I stayed a final semester to party, essentially, is what I did as I pushed out. I mean, who who can blame you, right? World class at ASU. (laughs) 100%. And I started, I was was 21 as a freshman. So I was going out as a freshman because (laughs) I was like, all my friends were juniors and seniors and they were running all the all the fraternities so i was yeah. partying with them and then going out to all the bars with them so it was like this cool that's a great setup between the two <laughs> and i never had to do the whole dorm setup i had my own place the entire time the so that was where i was kind of heading and i continued and that's when like border bordering on alcoholism and partying which is crazy that I was able to do my undergrad so quickly because I was drinking five, six nights a week. And still, like, I don't know how I even maintained that. And I had like a three, seven throughout all of it too, which I don't understand that. But (laughs) probably because everyone will say, oh, it's because you're going to school for acting. Here's here's where- I wasn't going to say it, but I'm just kidding. (laughs) Here's where it kind of takes a turn is my vocal production coach. So like, proper breath work of how to how to breathe through presentation not necessarily like not seeing like singing but like how to breathe and like use diaphragmatic breath work in order to propel and command your voice in a room or on stage she invited me to go to bali indonesia to go perform and go basically live in a commune and train with 12 of the best actors from this school in singapore as well as melbourne australia 
and I went and spent 30 days for the for for my time in Bali. The training was less, but I went and spent time there. And every day at 6 a.m., they had a yoga class. And I had been introduced to yoga prior, but I had never it was more used as like a warm up for for being on stage or something like that. It was never like something that I was like, okay, I'm going to dedicate myself to this practice because of something outside of myself or even within myself, if we want to get into semantics here. But like second weekend, I came out of Shavasana or after the class is over, you're lying and then you come out and I lost it. I broke down and I cried for probably two hours and it was like a piece of me was being released. Mm-hmm. And then all that emotion that you'd been been storing, right? And grief and all of that, because that lives in your body if it's not processed. Exactly. And wow. and then a couple of days later, we had done this exercise where we had basically it was an acting exercise. So anyone listening who's gonna be like, wow, why would you do that? But you sit in the middle of a half circle and you're going through and you're trying to authentically not really trying to, you are authentically responding to what that person is giving you in front of you. So you just go around the circle and you tell them what you see and then vice versa. And I got to my, my vocal production coach and I looked at her and I saw my mother Mm. and I just lost it again. Like I, I, I don't even know. I don't even remember what happened after that. All I remember is like, that was the end of the day. And I woke up the next morning and it was like, I was a different person the next day. Wow. The, the sky was a different shade of blue. The grass was greener. The food I ate tasted better. And it was, I had almost like lifted this veil off of, off of me. Yeah. I flew back to LA. I have maybe four friends that I still talk to from that day prior. And everyone else is, is people from that day post. Wow. The, the only thing that I wanted to do then was to meet more people like I knew then, like I knew there. Yep. Two weeks later, I was in my 200 hour teacher training. Oh my gosh. So it really did find you truly. hundred percent. And the teacher training I was going to for myself, like to grow as an individual, not necessarily even learn to teach, but because of my acting or because of my hockey background, I knew anatomy and physiology really well. So I was taking a six month program and month two, I was already teaching classes at that studio. Mm, Wow. Okay. So you go to the teacher training and then what happens? Because you start synchronicity around the same time that you're working at the Ondas, right? So it's about a year. It's about a year after my teacher training. So the teacher training was, I was still in school at the time. I still had my third year of university and I graduated university and YTT yoga teacher training at the, at the same time. After I graduated was when I went to then look for a job. And that's when my friends were working at Hyatt. So I got hired by Hyatt. Got it. Yoga took a a back burner for about two years. I went into the corporate world and did the whole corporate shebang. And then it started to peak its head back up because corporate world led me back down to the path of of drinking every night, going out, partying, doing drugs doing all of the things to suppress what wasn't lighting me up, what wasn't enjoyable, what wasn't fulfilling me because I was enjoying the interaction with people, but I have a very difficult time 
working within someone else's structure that doesn't have intention behind it. Yes. Oh if you, gosh, if you can tell so me, if you can tell me why we do this, I will do it. <laughs> but Kevin, if I feel you, like we're really similar. Like I've said that verbatim about a million times. <laughs> really? If you can't, yeah. what's the point? Like, yeah. it, it doesn't make sense to me. And then yeah. in a corporate structure, I'm like, hey, look, if we do this, you'll actually increase your margins because you won't be spending money on this. And now we can do this. They're like, eh, let's run it up the chain. You'll hear back from him in two months. And I'm like, if all right, ever. in two months, we would have already been here. Right, right. Oh my gosh. Yeah, we have a lot in common. I also just have to really quickly commend you for the honesty and vulnerability around sharing around, you know, drinking and just like different outlets when you're so unhappy and unfulfilled. I feel like so many people have been there, including myself, but no one talks about it. I say this all the time to clients by sharing your story, you give other people permission to do the same. Yeah. Amen. Amen. Ah, oh, I love it. You're a great storyteller too, by the way. It might be the acting background. Who knows? Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, so let's jump into the company piece then. So you start this company, you grow it, you take a major pivot during COVID because up until that point you're doing trainings, events, retreats, and then you pivot to more of like a consulting piece, helping studios and instructors make money online. So can you kind of walk us through how that all happened? Absolutely. So the, when I had first started Synchronicity was when I started the job at Ondas, and that was because I wanted a way to differentiate my income between health and wellness and, and the bar. And they, they'll give me shit for it to this day, but I had like made my own shirts at Ondas that said director of yoga. And normally in the corporate world, to work your way up to the director position, they were like, this is not okay. And I was like, fuck it, I'm going to do it because that's what I am at this place. And that's my own self-proclaimed label. And I think that might have pissed a few people off. But that's part of the thing. It's like, you can't, you obviously need to know what your actions do and how they affect people, but you can't let that change how you want to respond or how you want to act. Because if that's authentic to you and then you limit yourself, What's the point? You're now stymieing any, any type of success or any type of fulfillment that you're going to have from something based on someone else's opinion solely outside of you or external from you. So I had the two. And when I first started, when I, when I left Ondas, what I had was, it was very much, I was teaching weekly classes at studios. I was running events in the Valley. I was working with clients one-on-one, -on -one, but it was, and that happened for three years or so. And that was basically what I was doing. And it was still very much a time equals money equation. And it was, yeah. <laughs> I am teaching X amount of classes. This is my X income for the month, for the week, for whatever it ended up being. And then it got like, I had this, the first idea was how can I connect deeper with my students while also getting paid significantly more. And that's when I decided to run a retreat. So my very first retreat was to Sedona, Arizona. I basically sold out the retreat. I, I decided on like a Friday that I was going to run a retreat and I had it sold out by Monday with my students, but I had wow. it 
I hadn't run any numbers. I didn't even have a place we were going to. I didn't know who was cooking. I had none of the logistics. And we had, I think it was four weeks or six weeks until the actual date of the retreat. I didn't have a place until Monday when the retreat was supposed to start on Friday. Oh my gosh, that gives me anxiety. (laughs) (laughs) Now now you see my level of organization come through. So, (laughs) so the, yeah, now, cause now it's a complete 180 because now it's all structure and systems going into everything. Cause now I've like, that's how I've taught myself to then generate success. So the very first retreat, I think I lost like 300 bucks. Like I had 12 people on the retreat. I lost money doing it, but it was, and here's the caveat. It was so, it was fantastic. Everything went according to plan. It was awesome. I didn't make any money, but that wasn't necessarily, I wanted to make sure like proof of concept. Mm -hmm. But one thing I didn't recognize or I didn't account for was how much energy expenditure was needed to create space and show up for someone on that level over a, over a prolonged period of time. And guess what happened immediately following that retreat? I went on like a week-long bender. Yeah, I bet. I bet. Because I just reverted back to old habits because I hadn't created the systems or the structure, or if we want to get real kind of into the nuts and bolts here, I didn't have the inputs figured out yet and the outputs were controlling themselves. Yeah. I think, you know, integrating back into normal life after you go on a retreat like that is so key. And a lot of people, I don't think, block that time out. Like they'll go on a retreat and then they get back on Sunday and they're back at work Monday. Like, no, you got to you got to have time to process and integrate back in. My plan was to stay an extra night after the retreat. And then I was going to have a couple of the close clients stay with me, like not stay, stay up in Sedona with us. And then we all ended up going out that night. And then that night turned into Monday, turned into Tuesday, turned into Wednesday. And the next thing you know, it's Friday and I'm like coming off the worst hangover and, and withdrawals of my life. And I'm like, what the fuck am I doing? Because this is not like, I just, I was on a high and now I almost felt like I wasn't allowed to feel that good. So I had to pull Mm -hmm. myself back down. Oh, yep. Yep. That's almost the mentality behind it. But then I had this epiphany. I was like, well, it works. People are going to pay for it. People are going to show up. How do I structure this to make money from it? So I ran that exact same retreat to Sedona, Arizona, three months later, and I made seven grand. Three months later, just by restructuring it, just by actually deconstructing the numbers that went into it. And then I go, oh, okay, I'm on to something. Let's run an international retreat and do a full week. I took a group of 20 to Costa Rica, and now we're like 30, 35K for a week. In profit. Yep. So now I'm on to something. So now I start running between six and eight retreats a year. I'm going to places like Bali, Costa Rica. We're doing Sedona again. And I'm doing all of these places. And then COVID hits. And up until that point, like I was completely content. I was making plenty of money. I had no, everything was fine. I hadn't necessarily grown into, and you're always growing, but I hadn't grown into like the business mind that I wanted to be because I hadn't had all the obstacles that are needed to overcome, to teach, to learn the lessons that you need, you know? Right. So then COVID hits and overnight, 80% of our revenue is wiped out. Yep. Oh my God. That must've been a bit of a scary time, right? Mm -hmm. You strike me as an abundant mindset guy, but it must've been scary nonetheless. It was a hundred percent 
I don't know if scary is the right word. I used it as an excuse and I'll admit that. Mm. I was like, okay, cool. Now I got time off. I've been working hard. I should reward myself. And I took my foot off the gas and for about six months fell back into drinking and partying all the time because there's nothing else to do. And Arizona was more on the lax side. So we were just like, all right, cool. This is what we're doing. And then I went back into old habits. And then what happened? I was like, all right, I need to figure something out. And I'm always kind of the, let's create something. I'm like, when I get into flow and then when I get into that state of creation, that is my flow. So I was like, what can I create? Well, I've been really successful with retreats. Why don't I create a program for instructors to learn how to run six, to run retreats and make six figures a year doing so. So I built out this entire program. And I should say the, the synchronistic moment of that was I actually had a company from Florida call me and say, Hey, we want to send people to you to teach them how to run retreats. Can you create some sort of program? That was the impetus to create the program. Wow. So I created this program. I launched it and I sold one program because of COVID, because no one is interested in running retreats. I didn't do my own research. I didn't practice what I preach now and do my research and say, I'm going to sell you what you want, not what you think you want, or not, not the feature that I want to sell. Because it's not about me at the end of the day. It's not about you. It's about the client that is purchasing from you. Yep. And what problem are you solving for them? Exactly. But guess the one you want to solve, <laughs> right? <laughs> this is true. So guess what happened though? So I put up this course. It wasn't successful, but the interpretation of it was. So people perceived it like going back to perception, people perceived that it was a massive success. Like, how are you making so much money selling this retreat program? And I'm just like, yeah, it's going really, it's going great. <laughs> and they're like, oh, well, help. I want to make a program about this. I want to do a program about this. I want to do this. I want to do this. I want to do this. How do I sell it? Can you help me sell this? Mm. And what I had just discovered for myself of how to market this online, up until the sales point, all everything was converting as planned. It just wasn't selling because no one's interested in running retreats in a worldwide pandemic. Right. <laughs> so then I was like, all right, let's create what people want, which is how to sell their own courses, how to sell high ticket courses online, how to pivot and structure it so that really at first it was only wellness entrepreneurs. So how to structure and sell things that are... And the reason I had done that is because those are the people I wanted to focus on people who are interested in, in making a bigger impact rather than just income. So those are the people that I spoke to first and that I targeted first. Now it's grown into everyone who has an online business that is an impact focused entrepreneur. The, with that though, so then I started to build out what people actually wanted. And then that took off. And then I started to build a team. And then the team took off. And then that went, that started building. And then now coming out on November 1st is Mindful Method, which is the, the online client acquisition course version 3.0. Mm. So COVID really was a blessing for you in a lot of ways. 10, every single way you can possibly think about it. Mm. Yeah, I feel like everyone hit some level. I shouldn't say everyone. Most people hit some level of rock bottom during COVID. I did, but I'm so grateful for it because I like we wouldn't even be having this conversation had it not been for that, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think it's like making lemons, making lemonade out of lemons, right? That's a saying. I think that comes back to your mindset 
too. Like everything comes back to mindset because, okay, look at the people who haven't made anything or haven't taken strides during COVID. They're the ones who are then becoming victims of their circumstances rather than creating something from them. Because I know plenty of people who said, oh, wow, this is one of the best things ever. Now I have time to do what I've always wanted to do. And then another blessing out of it, to take a yoga note out of the book, is we're now allowed, we're forced even to sit with ourselves in silence and not go outside, which is probably the hardest thing to do. And what everyone does is they keep themselves so busy, they haven't had a chance to actually get in touch with themselves or with their thoughts. Because if we break down what it is that you want to create or why you're actually in a corporate job or what you're doing or whatever it ends up being, if you actually break it down, it's because you're going according to some type of condition that other people have imposed on you. Sure, there are people who that's what they've wanted to do. But you can also see that because they're actually fulfilled in what they are doing. But the vast majority of people until a worldwide pandemic hit had never had that conversation with themselves. Including me. Mm. (laughs) Tell me about that. Well, I I won't go into it too much because there's other episodes where I kind of dive in. But essentially, it forced me to evaluate the fact that I really wasn't happy in a sales role in corporate America selling cloud infrastructure. Like... That just wasn't what I knew I was put on the earth to do. And I think for a long time, I kind of made excuses and rationalizations for why it was okay. And COVID just cracked me open of like, hey, you need to go do like what you're called to do. And like, I'm going to give you all the clear signs that you need to go do this. And so I jumped off the cliff and now here we are. I love it. I have to ask you something too. So you were talking about the first retreat that you did and how you felt like, It wasn't okay to feel that good. And interestingly, I was just reading, I started reading it yesterday. I've had this book sitting over on my bookshelf for like two or three months. I finally felt called to pick it up yesterday. It's Ask and It Is Given by Abraham Hicks. Have you read this book? I have not, but it's on my list. You would love it. Okay. So I start reading it and it talks about how really being in tune with how you feel is a good indicator if you're doing what's true to you or not. If you feel good, like, that's good to feel good, right? In fact, our listeners won't be able to see this, but I pull a card from Gabby Bernstein's card deck every day. And today the one I pulled was, it's good to feel good. So (laughs) did you have to do a little bit of like rewiring, so to speak, around your mindset with that? I mean, tell me kind of what that personal transformation was like. I'm still doing rewiring every single day of my life. (laughs) I don't think that ever ends. I don't think that ever ends. But I think that... You're, you hit the nail on the head in, in regards to when something feels good, when you find flow, which if we break down and, and deconstruct flow, flow is the place in between anxiety and boredom. So mm-hmm. that is that happy place where it's not too much and you get anxious and it's not too easy and you get bored. So what yep. is that thing for you? When you find that, that's when people say, oh, I, it, it came through me. Oh, I just mm-hmm. sat down and the words came onto the page and I wrote yeah. the book in five days and I did this and that and this and that. And when I started to write the, my first course and my first really like giving information to someone for the purpose of bettering their lives, it was as if that same thing. 
Now I've, I'm in the process of writing a book and in the process of doing these other things that are in that creation realm. And that's where I thrive. That's the, that's the piece of me. And that's the piece of anyone who's ever been in this state, they will know. And exactly what I'm talking about. When you say like, you have infinite energy, you have infinite resources from which to call upon because you're in that state, because our minds, our bodies are far more powerful than you even can possibly imagine or give it credit for. And when, when we break, when we, we deconstruct how this is, that's like when I'm in the flow state, my day to day is just anyone looking from the outside in would be like, that's absolutely absurd. What you're doing. How are you going to do that? You're going to burn yourself out. That's not, you're not able to prolong that. And I'm like, what are you talking about? I've been doing this for like six months now. And it's just my day. That's like, that's how I operate. And that's the current space that I'm in right now. And then when someone says like, oh, I don't have time for this. It's a priority thing. But I don't have yes. money for this. It's a priority thing. Yes. And to go to, a, to, to take it to the sales perspective, because for you and then for anyone in the business world, sales is a, a necessity in everything that you're offering because you and have- And you're to- also selling all day, every day, whether you realize it or not. You're selling yourself. You're selling your partner where you want to go to dinner. You're selling what everything that you do. But if we break it down, it's everything that we say and do is a priority. So there's people who say, I can't afford it. But what do they have? The newest iPhone. They say, I don't have time. But they're out on the weekends with friends. So it means it's not a priority. So then to reframe that, take your, your partner, your parents, your dog, whoever it ends up being, they're sick. They die at midnight tonight and you have to find $10,000 today to pay for the surgery to save their life. Of course you can find 10 grand to do it. Yeah. It's just not a big enough priority. And most people are not willing to commit a thousand percent, burn the bridges and go all into what it is they want to do because of fear to steal the Jim, Jim Carrey quote here, the fear disguised as practicality. They're going to say, mm, that's not okay. I'm going to say, mm, I'm going to stay in my corporate job because it's, you know, it's practical. I make, here's, here's a good story for you too. And I don't even know where I heard this, but it's an analogy. Say Michael Jordan got in a car accident. He has amnesia, forgets who he is. Gets out of the hospital. Doesn't, no one wants to tell him who he is. They just like, let him be, let him just like figure it out. So he gets a job at Applebee's waiting tables. He works at Applebee's for, I don't know, however long, couple of years, someone comes in and they go, what the hell are you doing waiting tables, man? Why aren't you playing basketball? He's like, nah, I, I played basketball when I was a kid. <clears throat> There's, I, that was just a, something I did when I was younger. There's no reason to do it now. Like I wasn't that good. I wasn't good enough to go play. Because if you remember, he was cut from his high school yes. basketball team. Yep. He says, oh yeah, I'm not, not that good. It's not, not that big of a deal. Like, well, what are you doing? He goes, well, I, I need this job. I'm making like 25 bucks an hour. It's awesome. And I'm about to have a kid. So I've got to stay here for a couple more months. I'm going to get promoted to manager. Then I'm on a salary. Then it's safe. Then I got benefits. Then it's safe. So what are you talking about? You're making 30 grand a year. Why don't you go play basketball? And why don't you get a sponsorship? Who's going to pay you millions? He goes, screw it, man. What are you talking about? What, what are you actually thinking about? Because he's so stuck in what he's thinking. He's saying, our minds can only grasp what we may lose never what we could possibly gain. Hmm. So because we can't see the future, we can only see what we presently have now. You saying that this job is safe, you saying that this is practical, is you saying that I'm not open to the possibility 
of something else greater entering my life. Therefore, I'm not going to create any space or any room for it. Mm. That is such a good point. And I, I had never heard it put quite that way. And I really love that. You know, there's one other thing you said too about the, you, you held up an iPhone, right? I just saw something the other day. It was like, yeah, you spend $1,000 on a new iPhone, but you won't spend $1,000 to buy Apple stock that could make you a lot of money, right? So it's, it's priority. All, all comes down to priorities. Okay, so a couple more questions. I could literally talk to you for a few hours, but unfortunately, <laughs> I don't have that kind of time. So a couple more questions I wanted to ask you. One thing that I saw, I was you know scrolling your Instagram and you posted about the Pareto principle or better known as like the 80-20 rule. You talked about 80% of the work being responsible for 20% of the outcome and 20% of the work being responsible for 80% of the outcome. So I'm curious as a CEO, what's the top 20% of the work look like for you on a day-to-day? Currently, it's creation mode. And that's I've structured my day. So we can... I got a couple tangents here for you on this one. This is good. So the 80-20 principle, as you explained perfectly can also be, and it does apply to itself, meaning that 4% of the inputs dictate 64% of the outputs. Meaning 4% of what you do generates 64% of what you're doing. Everything else doesn't matter. That means if you focus on 4%, you are farther along than almost everyone else out there who's trying to play in the same waters. I've never heard it put like that. That's like the third time I've said that. You have so many good nuggets. I need to listen to this back a couple times. <laughs> they, compound, they compound upon themselves. So presently, and, and to, to put this into perspective now, so if you know that, and then you need to, to deconstruct not only where your time is going, so I call it a, a transcendent time audit. It's one of the things I give my clients. You go through an entire week and you quantify and qualify every 20 minutes that you are awake for an entire week. Now you can come back and I can tell you what your productivity score for every single fucking minute of your day is. And then you find out what your 4% is from that. Mm. Now what you do is you take that, that 4% and you put it into basically minimum working wage calculator. As a business owner, you need to know what your own working wage is, even though you're not, you're not working time for money anymore. But what you need to know is what your time is worth to you. And it's always going to be growing and expanding. So then you put it in there. You take whatever that minimum wage is. And then you multiply it by 50%. You go 50% up. Because that's where you want to be. You want to be progressing. You want to be growing. And now what do you do? You delegate, delete, or systemize everything that is below your present minimum wage. So if you're making $100 an hour... You shouldn't be cooking unless you find it fulfilling. You should have a maid to clean your house. You should have all of these support systems and all of these things delegated or really removed or systemized completely so that you're spending your time on things that are actually generating results and moving the needle as it's spoken about. So when you do that and then you find these things, the next thing you need to take into account is that if you consistently try and juggle all these different things, you're never able to get into a place of deep work. The way that our minds work is called an ultradian rhythm. It's similar to your circadian rhythm, but your ultradian rhythm, your circadian is like wake sleep cycle. Ultradian rhythm is productive to lull, productive to, to lull. And it works in 90 minutes on, 20 minutes off. So you'll get this spike at 90 minutes. You'll say, oh, I'm 
craving bad food. I'm craving a cigarette. I'm craving whatever it ends up being. And then these old inputs come back. But what happens if you take a 20 minute break, then at the 90 minute mark, your body begins to detoxify. Your brain kind of tags and stores all of the new information that you brought in. You are able to almost reset back. And now you're able to go back. You'll never get back to 100%, but you'll be at like 95. And then you do it again, it's 90. If you don't take the break and you push through, sure, you can keep working like a maniac. But what happens? You go up, you go up, and then you hit a plateau and then you start to drop. And now the quality of work isn't as good. You start to get irritated. You start to call people on their shit when you maybe shouldn't say that. And all these other things happen. So if you take that and now you say, all right, I need to block my day, which is what I do now, block my day into 90 minute ultradian cycles of how I have it set up. So if you were to look at my Google calendar, it will have exactly what I'm doing for 90 minute increments and then plugged in with what I'm doing. So the first, and I go the very first thing in the morning, I go a little bit over 90 minutes because then I go spend an hour in the gym. So because I'm in creation mode and because I want to be slightly in that, not sleep brainwave, when you first wake up is when you're in that I don't care what other people think. Let's actually just put words to a page rather than judgment of what it is you're actually doing. So I actually do my best writing first thing in the morning. So I wake up at four and I work from four to 6.30. Contrary to what everyone says, don't work first thing in the morning. It works for me. And I've found that it works for me. So from four to 6.30 or really 6.15, I then, I'm just writing. I have no notifications. I have absolutely nothing nothing. And I have the work pulled up that I want to hit from the night before so that I, I don't even have to go searching for it and potentially get pulled down a, a line. Over the past, yeah, great call out. probably 60 to 90 days, I think I've written like almost 500,000 words. Wow. Granted, yeah. You know, I've noticed that too. I'm so much more creative in the morning. It's but the, it takes a lot of discipline to get up, before, you know, at that hour. Part of it is one, you, you're in that, that different state. So you're, you're allowing yourself to just express because I mean, what is writer's block? Writer's block doesn't technically exist. Writer's block is technically you fearful of what other people are going to think of your writing. Therefore you judge what it is that you're going to say. Mm -hmm. So then you get in your own head then you say, I can't write anything in the morning. I'm not going for quality. I'm going to get it down on the page because once it's on the page, now we can qualify it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's such a good point. Actually, this is a perfect segue. I didn't share any interview questions with you before, so you didn't know this was coming, but let's stick on the, on the note of books. There were two more questions I wanted to ask you. One was, I saw a post about you going on a reading streak and then you fall off the wagon, which I'm so guilty of too. I love starting books, but finishing them sometimes is another story. So I'm curious, did you find a way to get back on the reading wagon? And if so, what are you reading right now? Yes, because I've made it a priority. But to... Here's another, another tip or trick for you. I break up because... It's not time that is the most valuable resource. It's your energy because without energy, time doesn't matter to you. Because if you can't be focused on something, if you don't have energy for your attention, what does that hour of time actually mean if you're not then focused? So man, touche. because energy is the most valuable commodity right now, so to speak, or really 
non-renewable resource, I've found ways in my day to basically 2x or 3x hack my time. So because our brains can't multitask, it's physically impossible, no matter what anyone tells you, you have attentional blinks, which means when you switch from one thing to the next, you have a one to three second gap where it takes your mind to now adjust to the new thing. Fine if it happens once or twice, but now you compound this upon each other. Now half of your day is spent in a gap state, not consciously focused on something. That's why deep work, that's why the 90 minute, you're focused on one thing. That's why I can turn out godlike levels of output because it's focused on one specific thing. Mm-hmm. So knowing that, I've then really qualified everything that I do at specific times into a primary or secondary category. So if I'm going for a run, that's a secondary thing. The primary, because you can do that unconsciously. You can run and don't even know that you're running. You can sad, you can drive and not even know that you're driving. So then if that's a secondary, what can you do for a primary? Where can your focus be? That's on an audiobook. Yeah. So I've read far less physical books, but consumed far more audio books in this is probably over the past six months, three to six months or so. Well, and if you're anything like me too, I listen a lot faster than I read. I'm kind of a slow reader because I really like to make sure I got all the points and it just takes me forever. I listen. There's not anything. I think it's ruined it for me, but I don't listen to anything less than 2x speed. <laughs> wow, that's it, impressive. I, at that point, it, they sound like the chipmunks. Like I can't even pick it up. <laughs> once, once you get used to it, one, it will ruin every other regular video for you. Um, but two, you're, you'll actually comprehend it better because the mm. speed in which most people read is far slower than what your brain can actually comprehend. Oh, okay. So to get, used, to get used to it, and that's what I was going to give you the tip here is to get used to it, listen to the book while you're reading it. Follow I along. Did, I did that with Atomic Habits and took notes and I absorbed that book better than I've absorbed anything. Because you're hitting it from multiple stimulus. Yeah. So what are you listening to right now? There, I have two. One is Simon Sinek's, um, what is it? He has the so Im- many good The ones. Infinite Game. Not start, oh. with, start with why I've had a long time ago. The My Infinite- husband told me I have to read that book, The Infinite Game. The Infinite Game. I love it. It's fantastic. But the one that I'm presently listening to um, I'm doing some sales training stuff for my team. So I've been listening to a lot of their calls in the morning. And that's been my kind of book, so to speak. But yep. the other one that I'm reading is The Five Dysfunctions of a Team by Patrick Lenioki, Lenaki, something like that. Um, right. And it's from a fictitious point of view, a basically nonfiction approach to running a, a team from a CEO perspective. Hmm. Okay. That sounds interesting. And then final question, what is the best book you've ever read and why? Fiction or non? Either one. Fiction, The Alchemist by Paulo Coelho. That's probably my most gifted book to people as well. Um, Because it's completely fictitious, but the underlying story and going back to, you can tie this back to business too. People don't buy the feature, they buy the benefit. They buy the benefit because of you telling a story. People don't care about the external, they care about the internal. Michael Haig, The Hero's Two Journeys, 
every character experience is an external and an internal story. The external is what you can follow along on visually and see. So that's the climbing of the mountain. But what people actually care about, what actually allows me and you to resonate with and say, hey, this is the character that I vibe with, is the internal story. The person they became by hiking the mountain. That's what people care about. So if you can then craft that in your sales copy, in your ads, in your marketing, in your blog posts, in everything that you do, and now you can start to tell from a storyteller point of view, I call it story selling. You're selling yourself through the use of story. You should trademark that if it hasn't already been. I might have to Google that right when I hop <laughs> I have a great lawyer that does trademarks. So if you need her, let me know. Um, what about nonfiction? Best nonfiction book? I read so many nonfiction that it's... I don't know if I could pick one. No, right it's hard. The there are two. The two most recent are the most fresh in my mind right now that I'll, I'll talk about. One was Atomic Habits by James Clear. I read that so again. So good. So That's good. Just, like the most impactful book I think I've read at least all year. That and what was the other one? The other one is, sorry, excuse me. Talking a lot over here today for some reason. Who knows? <laughs> Maybe because I'm interviewing you. I don't know. <laughs> the other one is $100 million Offers by Alex Hormozy. Oh, okay. So I interviewed my friend Jacqueline at last. Well, it's been a few weeks, but her episode dropped last week. And she told me that I have to read that book. So that's my sign. I'm going to add it to the cart. I'll link all these books in the show notes too, by the way, for those of you listening. Absolutely fantastic. And he is a good storyteller as well. So I would say listen to that one. I love it. Well, this has been so great. You're so interesting. Such a good storyteller or story seller, perhaps is the better word. Um, before we sign off, where can listeners find and connect with you? Absolutely. So everything for the business side of things is at synchronicity.biz. And that's going to be all of our retreats, events, consulting work, any of our online courses and programs. If you're interested in the podcast or all things Kevin Wathy, that is kevinwathy.com. Well, thank you so much for coming on. After this, we'll be recording a business tip. Kevin, can you tell us a little bit of what you're going to be sharing? Absolutely. So we are going to be talking about the use of Facebook groups for client acquisition, as well as how to systemize strategically and really automate the process so that you're able to connect deeper with your ideal client. And one little tidbit here is that Automation is not to be confused with a lack of authentic connection. It actually allows you to dive deeper because you're not focused on the tedium. You're able to actually connect with your clients in a way that allows you to propel yourself forward and get them better results while removing all of the systemized tasks that we'll talk about in the, in the tip. Oh, can't wait. Well, thank you so much for coming on and thank you all of you for listening. Thank you so much for listening to the show. If today's episode added value to your life in some way, please subscribe, leave a five-star review, and share it with someone who needs this. I'd love to connect with you on Instagram and hear how the show has inspired you. So tag me or slide into the DMs. Find me at Corporate Dropout Official or Alessia Citro. That's A-L-E-S-S-I-A-C-I-T-R-O and two underscores. Until next time, remember that you're a badass, stay focused, stay hungry, and dare to drop out.